Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. It's unconscionable that higher education has gotten two and a half times more expensive over the last number of years. And one of the jokes I used to pose was like, has it gotten two and a half times better? And that always yeah. got a laugh because people were like, it has not really gotten two and a half times better. Many universities, especially elite universities, have become hedge funds that provide classes to the children of their investors. And then we wipe Vaseline over the lens of the caste structure that has been that higher education has become by letting in some freakishly remarkable middle class and lower income kids and to try and make ourselves kind of the neosporin of our guilt. What we could do is through a mix of small and big tech, potentially, potentially dramatically expand capacity. I was a, a remarkably unremarkable kid. And the reason I'm here speaking to you today is because UCLA led in a third of its applicants. Academics and administrators have become drunk on exclusivity. Andrew, every year, the deans of the top schools, including mine, get up and boast that we rejected 88% of our applicants. That's tantamount to the head of a housing shelter bragging that he or she turned away nine in 10 people who showed up last night. Hey guys, it's Zach Grauman. I was Andrew Yang's campaign manager and one of the co-hosts of Yang Speaks. On today's episode, we've got Scott Galloway. He's an NYU professor and a marketing expert, and they talk about how you actually break up big tech companies, what to do with our universities today, and all the problems that come with that. And they also talk about the crisis of men. Scott Galloway is one of the smartest men on the planet this conversation could have gone on for hours. It's fantastic. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Yang Speaks with Scott Galloway. Welcome, Scott. Thanks very much, Andrew. And this is the Prop G Show. And I want to welcome our guest, Andrew Yang. Andrew hasn't been up to much recently, so I don't know what we're going to talk about. But anyways, we're doing this a little bit different. It's a back and forth. It's a, it's a, it's one plus one equals three, and we're gonna have a conversation here. But anyways, Andrew, I will let you kick it off. Well, Scott, your blog is uh, um, something that I read as a sign of what's coming because you're you're like a great combination of uh, numbers and humanity, uh, and you also are a parent like I am. You're concerned about a lot of the same issues. Uh, I am around tech's impact on our kids' mental health. And you're postulating, which I agree with because it just makes sense, that the tech companies are going to start moving into education in this next number of weeks and months, in part because a lot of the universities are going to be struggling, but in part because the tech companies have a mandate to grow. And if you're going to try and grow, there are only limited 
industries that can afford you a big enough dollar sign to meaningfully impact a trillion dollar company. Uh, so you're a professor at your day job, in addition to the five million other things that you're doing. Um, and you've written extensively already on like the future of education. I'd love, I'd love to talk about what you see as tech's role in the future of education as someone who's on the inside. Uh, thanks for that, Andrew. Yeah, so I, I think if you look at uh, any public company makes an implicit promise to shareholders that they'll double their stock price in five years. Otherwise, investors will go buy Zoom or Peloton or something else. So if you're Apple or Google, that means you've got to grow your top line, assuming some operating leverage, by anywhere between, call it, 100 and $200 billion over the next five years. So if you realistically have to grow your your top line by 100 to 200 billion, what that means is there's just very few game you can actually go hunting for. It kind of limits you to 10 industries. The automotive that are big enough to sate that appetite, that top line appetite. You could say, well, the auto industry, well, that's a low margin, difficult business that's already pretty efficiently run. You could say, well, government, well, okay, are these companies gonna start getting into government services? The two obvious ones are healthcare, 17% or 18% of US GDP, high margins, people aren't very satisfied. And then education, what is a, you know, a multi-trillion dollar industry globally, six or 700 billion domestically. So I would argue the big tech, it's not if they'll get into tech, it's when. And why? Because they have to, they have no choice. There's very few industries that, that offer just the sheer amount, the, the carcass, the size that can sate their appetite. So I think that they will, go into, into education in the short term, it'll be around supplying tools as universities are all of a sudden faced with 20, 30, 50, in some cases, 100% of their classes going online. They'll be serving them as vendors. You're already seeing these companies ramp up their educational offerings. And then we might see, or we will see, I think, them do what Google just announced, and that is they'll get into the business of certification. Because at the end of the day, the $240,000 in tuition that NYU asks households to pay it's, yeah, it's for the experience, yeah, it's for the education, but the real ROI is in the certification. So my question to you, my question back to you, Andrew, on Inauguration Day, do you put in place a plan? Do you fund the DOJ and break these guys up? We got to do something for sure. And it's one thing I'd love to talk to you about is that if you share our diagnosis of the fact that these companies are running roughshod on many things that you'd consider the public domain, whether it's uh, the way we get information or our democracy, or again, our kids' mental health, like there needs to be a real government role. One of the things that I said on the trail was like, we need 21st century solutions for 21st century problems. And I'm not sure if you just go around saying break them up, um, that's going to do the trick. Though in certain cases, 100%, a lot of these businesses need to divest parts of themselves. Like you shouldn't have Amazon uh, white labeling their own stuff and then essentially crowding out like other folks who are trying to sell uh, to consumers. You can't have these companies just gobbling up anything that could become a potential competitor, even in an adjacent space. Like if you had a monopoly in the old days, you would say, look, okay, you're AT&T or whatever. Like we're not going to let you also just start buying into... Uh, retail or electronic stores or, or whatever the heck it is like uh, that that's like adjacent to you in the way that we've let Alphabet just freaking get into anything under the sun. Right. Like they, they've got like a near quasi monopoly on, um, on on search engines and advertising and the rest of it. So maybe there needs to be some limit 
Um, but it's bad for innovation. It's bad for us all if the business model of every company in Silicon Valley is to get annoying enough so that one of the trillion dollar behemoths will just throw throw some stock at you and then like gobble you up. Uh, like and, and that that right now is a more realistic plan for entrepreneurs than it is to say like I'm going to beat Google. I'm going to beat Facebook. It's more like I'm going to get just annoying enough so that they can snap me up and then you'll be rich. I'll be rich. I'll do my earn out. I'll hang out in the bowels and like, uh, you know, chill out Silicon Valley style. Um, so so that's not where we should be. Like there, there are certainly, and it, it needs to be government. I mean, it's one thing that like I appreciate about your perspective is that the problems are mammoth and your book, The Four, laid them out in graphic detail. And if you look around so many people, and I'm an entrepreneur, you're an entrepreneur, um, like I like, uh, I like people pursuing entrepreneurial opportunities, but the market's not going to afford any kind of counterweight to what's going on with like your kids, you know, addiction to, to screens or my kids addiction to screens or whatnot. Like the, the, there's not like a market based solution. Uh, and so we have to do the impossible, which is get the government to get its shit together, <laughs> which, yeah. which, is, which is like right. and, and, and as a practical problem solver. Like that's not appealing either in a sense. You're like, oh, oh, really? Like I have to rely on government to do this thing? But yeah, we have to rely on government to do this thing because there's no realistic alternative, in my opinion. Well, it's interesting because we have a, first off, you said something that really resonated. I advise a venture capital firm. I'm in a lot of pitches. And essentially every pitch from a small company to uh, venture capital funders is something, uh, some variation of the following. We don't compete with Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google, but we'd make a great acquisition. So you're right, it's no longer about unseating these behemoths. The fastest growing parts of our economy, devices, social media, search, social, there hasn't been a social media platform started of any size since 2011, since Pinterest. So the fastest growing parts of our economy are dominated by these monopolies and duopolies. We like to think we're in an era of innovation. We're in an era of non-innovation. There were more businesses being started every day in the Carter administration than there are now. It used to be 15% of companies were less than 12 months old. Now it's 7%. So uh, let's, I'm curious, let's talk about antitrust. We actually have in the U.S. a proud legacy of antitrust. We broke up you know, I think it was Teddy Roosevelt got elected by the railroad guys and then turned around and said, I love you, but I got to break you up because you're bad for America. We broke up AT&T. We broke up the aluminum guys. And antitrust is one of the few government actions that we sort of get the government gets right all the time. If you look back, there's very few breakups where you look back and think the government screwed up. Oh, yeah, we shouldn't have done that. Yeah, yeah. When it, when it happened, it was right. It's like yeah. the one thing where government's batting a thousand. Why is it that America has fallen out of love with antitrust? I'd say there are three things, Scott. The, the first is that the 20th century framework was built around uh, anti-competitive pricing. Uh, and if you are the Amazons or the Googles of the world, you're like, what do you mean? Like, I charge less than everybody. Consumer like, I'm not harm. gouging anyone. Yeah. Uh, and so if you use price as your framework, then uh, there doesn't seem to be a problem, even though there are massive negative externalities uh, you know, that aren't accounted for in, in price. Uh, the second thing is that our government has now become bought and sold by lobbyists. And so even though tech was a little bit late to the game in lobbying, uh, like, what do you have on the other side? Nothing, really. Like, you have a clueless legislature being like, well, I don't understand technology. And then you have the tech lobbyists whispering in their ear being like, hey, if anything, you need us to, quote unquote, innovate more. Right, right. <laughs> and, and, and so there, right. there's not like... And, and the, the third thing 
is that I think our entire society has um, become collectively brainwashed into like an efficiency culture. It's like capital efficiency for ourselves. Uh, and you talk about this in some of your work too, like where, you know, like the, like I'm, uh, I'm, I think like fairly uh, efficient, but there's, there's been this collective brainwashing of all of us that, uh, that efficiency is good, that the tech companies in particular enable efficiency and that standing in their way is inefficient. And hand in hand with that has been this complete mistrust of government as this uh, paragon of inefficiency, of bloat, bureaucracy, um, et cetera. And so culturally, we are not disposed towards uh, trying to break up these tech companies that we think have improved our lives, um, particularly in contrast with what we think about government a lot of the time. Now, I think that these things are all wrong. Like, I, I think you're right that antitrust um, has historically been a real force for for progress, balanced progress, not just extreme progress. Uh, and the, the example that Roger McNamee uses, is like, look, you had these chemical manufacturing companies, it took us a little while to figure out that dumping chemicals, like into landfills and streams was really bad, and we needed to regulate it. This industry is relatively new, and it's taken us a little bit of time to realize just how noxious, for example, the advertising-driven revenue model is yep. for social media and a bunch of other things. Um, but we need to figure it out, and then we need to take affirmative steps. And my great hope for this time is that we're going to actually embrace more aggressive, ambitious solutions than we would have considered pre-crisis. Uh, that's the silver lining. Uh, one thing I campaigned on was that it's unconscionable that higher education has gotten two and a half times more expensive over the last number of years. And one of the jokes I used to pose was like, has it gotten two and a half times better? And that always yeah. got a laugh because people were like, it has not really gotten two and a half times better. Nope. And then I posed the question to the folks in the audience and was like, hey, why has it gotten so expensive? And then they think about it for a minute. And then I say, did we hire lots of professors? And they're like, no. <laughs> you know, did we build lots of new buildings? And they were like, maybe. And then I say that the real driver is the fact that uh, we've hired 150% more non-faculty administrators uh, at these universities. They've become these like overgrown uh, bureaucracies themselves. And it's become this hidden tax on people, on the middle class, on folks who are trying to, to uh, give their kids a better life. Uh, and that's been building up for decades, in yep. part because any, any college every year just looks around and says, okay, how, how much are we going to increase our prices by this year? Yep. And so you have this, this inflationary effect that's unique to healthcare and education. And then families felt like they had no choice but to pay. So then the government said, don't worry about it. We've got you. Here's some loans. So we're now yep. up to 1.6 trillion in, yeah. in student loan debt. And I love the fact that you work for NYU, but you're honest about the fact that, look, these university administrators have very clear financial incentives, like foregoing $400 million in tuition is like, a, you know, like it, it, it would wreck um, many of these institutions. And so you have many schools that are bravely putting up uh, signals saying, yep. well, hey, we're going to reconvene in the fall. Yep. And then you look at it and say, like, is this what you would do if this wasn't like an existential problem for your school to forego? Uh, tuition revenue for a semester. And I would love to hear your ideas on how we can somehow help the university uh, system become 
more cost conscious and invest in things that will actually improve kids' educational outcomes as opposed to their U.S. News and World Report rankings? Yeah, we are definitely brothers from another mother. I mean, we, we, your summary, it took me two years to get to the, to the summary you just uh, articulated in about three minutes. But look, we live in a capitalist society, and having more money means more opportunity for your kids, access to better health care, access to a broader selection of mates. It's just a wonderful thing to have more versus less money in a capitalist society. And all of us fall victim to that in the sense that when it's you're first and foremost going to fix your own oxygen mass. And there's a belief that universities are these very noble institutions where we wear cardigans, watch PBS, and pet our Labrador and don't think about money. And professors and administrators want the same economic security as everyone else. So by a combination of this dictum or this gestalt where everybody has to get a college education, where we constrain supply and become luxury brands as opposed to public servants, we consistently have been able to raise prices through this kind of cartel, as you mentioned, twice as fast as inflation. And we justify that we're doing it for the right reasons, but the reality is many universities, especially elite universities, have become hedge funds that provide classes to the children of their investors. And then we wipe Vaseline over the lens of the caste structure that, has been, that higher education has become by letting in some freakishly remarkable middle class and lower income kids and to try and make ourselves kind of the neosporin of our guilt. This is, it's, it's, it's morally corrupt and it is, it is, the spring used to be a time of nervousness but excitement about where your kid was going to college. Now it's become uh, despair and anxiety around how do I tell my little girl that on a fireman's salary and maybe my wife is my wife is a, a doctor or nurse that we can't afford to send her to Tulane how do you have that conversation how do you how do you feel like you're failing the American dream because you can't afford to, after working your ass off to income you can't afford to send or you make a worse decision and that is your kid doesn't get into the top school because they take pride in rejecting nine out of ten applicants and worse yet they go to a second tier school where they don't get nearly the upside because corporations still look at those universities in terms of evaluating your currency in the marketplace and how much they're going to pay you but you incur elite university level debt it's just this is one of the most, in my opinion, ugly parts of our society right now, and it's happened incrementally because like anyone else, university administrators and professors want to live the same great life um, as anyone else. What, what do we do about it? I've been spending a lot of time with Chancellor Block, who is the chancellor of, the, of my alma mater that receives more applications than any university in the world, and that's the University of California, Los Angeles. And I've come to the conclusion that these institutions are almost constitutionally incapable of cutting costs. Between tenure, between the Rolexification of their facilities, it is very hard for them and they haven't had to cut costs for 40 years. It's almost impossible. What we could do is through a mix of small and big tech, potentially, potentially dramatically expand capacity. If you were to take 50% of your courses online, and there are a lot of courses that would be fine online or a lot of sessions where there isn't a lot of interaction that you could facilitate online, if you take half your classes online, you effectively, Andrew, double the size of the campus. So what I would like to see, and what I would hope individuals like you that might serve in a cabinet or be in a position of, of, of authority and power someday, is could we have some sort of grand bargain where we go to governors? Let's go to Governor Newsom and say, increase the University of California budget by 20%, 
and we're going to dramatically decrease the cost per student educated through the use of small and big tech by expanding our capacity. And we're going to take UCLA back from a 13% admit rate to where it was in the 90s, 20 or 25. We have to dramatically expand our land-grant public universities capacity such that we can take good, maybe not remarkable. I, don't, I mean, I don't know where you went to school. I was a, a remarkably unremarkable kid. And the reason I'm here speaking to you today is because UCLA let in a third of its applicants. And they could say to the son of a single immigrant mother who lived and died a secretary, let's be honest, you're not great, but we like your profile. You're a son of, Amer of California. We're going to let you in. They don't have the luxury of doing that now. They don't have the luxury of letting in kids with remarkable futures. They have to only let in the remarkable. So I think it's about dramatically expanding through the use of technology, freshman seats, and also breaking this wheel where academics and administrators have become drunk on exclusivity. Andrew, every year, the deans of the top schools, including mine, get up and boast that we rejected 88% of our applicants. That's tantamount to the head of a housing shelter bragging that he or she turned away nine in 10 people who showed up last night. We have lost the script. We need to move back to being public servants as opposed to luxury brands. And we need to embrace technology and have almost like a martial, martial act-like feel such that we take capacity for our great public systems, University of Texas, Michigan, University of California, Cal State, CUNY, Florida State systems, and, and expand their seats by 30 or 50%. I think a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. I think there's an opportunity here to move back to where we were, where kids who are unremarkable have remarkable opportunities through the upward lubricant that is higher ed. Anyways, that's my rant, Andrew. That's my rant. I love your rant. And I love the fact, too, that you're putting your, your time into making that happen. Because I saw you offer something like an MBA sprint where you're, you're, and you're one of like the top rated uh, professors at, at uh, NYU's business school. And you said, wait a minute, I can actually give a student like a significant proportion of the value at a fraction of the, the cost. And, and this is something this is something you, you may not know about me. I used to run uh, the nation's largest GMAT prep company, uh, Man Manhattan GMAT. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And and like I, I saw the same thing you did, which is like, why is a mid professional 20 something year old taking two years out and spending 100K plus on an MBA? And it was like, is it the coursework? It's like, eh, not really. Like some of them actually took some of the same coursework um, as undergrads or learned something equivalent like during their analyst program or whatnot. It's like, uh, is it the credentialing? Heck yes. It's like they want that credential and then be able to like have this career transition to have their hand stamped as someone that Amazon or Google or Morgan Stanley would want to hire. And then I thought, it's like, does that should that take two years and a hundred thousand plus? Like, like, could you actually kind of compress the credentialing if you had essentially an analogous admissions process and an analogous like brand attached to it? Where and so my my thought process was like, instead of a two year MBA program at uh, Columbia or HBS or whatnot, if McKinsey said, hey, this is going to be like the McKinsey summer at sea and uh it's instead of a hundred thousand it's twenty five thousand and you'll get a mckinsey credential right and it takes like uh three months and we give you a lot of the same social experiences that you expect out of uh, out of your mba program because a lot of it's the network you show up you commingle with people that you think are going to be uh both friends and uh you know good 
colleagues and corporate contacts. And then I thought to myself, do you really need to be in the same place with folks for like two academic years, uh, you know, broken up by a summer? Or could you build those relationships faster? So like the, the fact that you're actually experimenting with this kind of format is like we have to come clean about the fact that uh, and this is something you argue is like, look, a lot of these schools are essentially just becoming caste system organizers. Uh, and it's not like when a parent gets, um, you know, or not, they, when the kid gets the admissions letter from the school, the parent is then like, ooh, that's great, because here are like the 10 professors I want you to study with. Like, they're not actually paying attention at that level. They just know the brand of the school. And so that's right. if, if you... So if we can, like, we, we need to examine this from soup to nuts. Like, you look at it and say, okay, why is it four years? Why does it cost this much? And to your point, like, why are you getting rewarded for turning people down? Like, aren't you supposed to be a public good? I love the fact that you've identified public universities as the place to launch this from because it makes the most sense. Uh, and and they, they should be growing their seats. Like, instead of... Uh, a proportion of people you reject, it should be looking up society-wide and saying, okay, how many 18-year-olds do we think are like approximately uh, the right fit for what we're going for in terms of a public education? And then you should be rewarded for educating a higher proportion of those people, which is like the reverse of the way they get rewarded now. Yeah. yeah if I'm in position to do this, man, I'm 100% going to do you're it. You're in, you're because in. Because yeah, I, I, look, it comes down to a, a basic theme and in, in a, in a shift in mindset, and that is the, the worth of a society isn't the opportunities it offers its remarkable. The, the, it feels to me like the United States, and I'm curious to get your, has moved from how do we give our truly remarkable, remarkable being people who are born with tremendous opportunities and also are tremendously skilled. You know, everyone says NYU is a place for rich kids. Yeah, but it's also rich kids who are super impressive. They're remarkable. Do we just continue to funnel more and more of the spoils to that small segment who are both blessed because they're born into wealth and be very good, remarkable? Or isn't the judge of a society or the, the worth of a society what kind of opportunities it gives to its unremarkable? What kind of opportunities it gives to the kid who maybe doesn't have access to the test prep that you are offering, who maybe has had challenges at home, who maybe doesn't, at the age of 15, doesn't have a patent and isn't building wells in Africa and isn't captain of the lacrosse team. I mean, the kids that now get into these schools, we're basically saying that the two, the two cohorts that are gonna divide the spoils of, of American productivity, wages have not gone up, productivity skyrocketed, that's trillions of dollars in surplus wealth, that all goes to two cohorts. That's the children of rich kids or people who are freakishly remarkable between the ages of 15 and 17 who get into Harvard. We talk about these elite schools, the reason we talk, I talk about the state schools is the Ivies are more spectacled than historic. They educate, they have 64,000 total students. Ohio State has 55,000, Florida State has 75,000, Berkeley will graduate more kids from low-income household this year than the entire Ivy League combined. So the Ivy League, look, fine. You're, you're uh, great leaders, produce leaders, children of rich kids, remarkable kids from middle and lower-income households. But where America changes, where America fundamentally changes, is these land-grant public schools that educate two-thirds two -thirds of our students. And we're going to need some sort of real dramatic rethinking. I think this is your platform. I think UBI and education, I think these are the two legs of the stool. I don't know what the third one is, Andrew, for your next run. You, you'd have to say healthcare. Everyone, you'd have to say health, because healthcare has some of the similar problems to 
um, to education. You're going to like this about me, Scott. Uh, my parents met at UC Berkeley. Like they immigrated. Really? Yeah. 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 They immigrated uh, from Taiwan and met on campus. Uh, my brother is named after the Lawrence Observatory oh, because nice. he was born. Where did you um, go to school, Andrew? In town. I went to Brown. Got it. And in. And so let me ask you this. So Christina Paxson, I think her name is, the president of Brown, makes a very bold, authoritative statement in the spring that we have a national obligation to welcome back students. I think she's looking at her bank account when she says that. I think we have an obligation to keep kids at home right now, given the spike in the virus. I think it is irresponsible to think that the kids who basically go to college to not distance are going to maintain the same on-campus protocols off-campus, and that these strident statements that we should welcome students back to campus are, I don't want to use the word negligent, but don't acknowledge the reality of the virus and are loosely influenced by the notion that these institutions have been used to taking one, two hundred, three million, three hundred million dollars in tuition deposits, and for them to say, we're brown and we want to charge you $58,000, but it's going to be for a bunch of Zoom classes from your, your, your dad's office or your old bedroom that your dad's converted into an office, that they are being unduly influenced by money and that we're setting ourselves up universities to be the new super spreaders. It used to be nursing homes uh, and it used to be, I would call, Republican Arrogant governors have been the agents of super spread. I'm worried it's going to move to chancellors and the, ven the new venues of super spread in September are going to be universities. And President Paxson has an obligation to come out and say, we are not going to welcome you back. You need to stay at home. Your thoughts? Uh, I'd say two things. Number one, I tend to listen more closely if someone's saying something against their uh, self-interest or their, their institution's interests. So if you have a couple hundred million on one side of the ledger, and you say, hey, I'm going to uh, pound the, the table for that side of the ledger, then I tend to like discount it like, or, right. or just be like, yeah, of course you'd say that because you've got a couple hundred million steering you that direction. If someone heads the opposite direction, then I'm like, ooh, like this person actually is uh, uh, speaking on principle or evincing leadership because it's against the grain. One thing I disagree with you about is you said like the Ivy League's producing a bunch of leaders. Um, you know, I did the math like, 80% of the folks out of the Ivy League schools will do one of six things in six places, uh, banking, consulting, law, tech, medicine, or academia in New York, San Francisco, Boston, Chicago, DC, or LA. Huh. And, and if you do the same thing that everyone else does, to me, it's not exactly the definition of leadership. It's like, hey, I'm just going to like, you know, hop in the stream and then like swim where the current takes me and then, uh, and then cash in my, like the water that sprinkles on me because I'm now attached to this geyser of uh, surplus. So um, so that number one is, look, if your economic incentives are to say something and you say that thing, then it's like, well, like, you know, maybe I should take that with like a mammoth grain of salt. The second thing is when you talk about educators who have an obligation to their kids to say, hey, we need to reopen school, you're looking at kids who are at an earlier stage of formative development. Agreed. Like are, are there kids who legitimately are going to be damaged if they don't have some kind of real like educational it's resource? It's a different ball of wax. You have kids, I have a nine and a 12 year old. I think the conversation around reopening schools for them is an entirely different conversation than whether a 19 year old needs to get back to Chapel Hill. I think it's a totally different conversation. Agree. That 19 year old's relatively fully formed, like having like a period of time 
uh, like in you, you're pro gap year. I'm also very pro gap year. So if you have people who are 18 or 19 years old doing something independent, that's probably good for their development. Like, you know, like, like saying that, Hey, I need to get them back on campus ASAP because, uh, like the kids are going to get screwed up if they're not here. It's like, yeah, <laughs> like, like I'm not as worried about kids missing, like, you know, intro to lit classes as I am like the, the third grader is not going to be able to read, uh, you know, like that, 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 that's like the, the, the bigger problem. Um, so I'm with you. I'm aligned. Um, yeah, I haven't talked to, uh, president Paxton about, uh, <laughs> yeah, you haven't, you haven't reached out to her and told her to, to stop, stop that. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses as tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So I I want to I want to know more about. I'm just fascinated. I can't I can't figure out if you're the most or the least self-aware pres, uh, a person to decide to run for president. I can't decide if this is. That you're either were delusional or you have just incredible self-awareness and courage. What, when you decided to run for president, like when you think out, well, let me back up. What was the best, uh, be more specific, what was the best and the worst thing about running for president? The best thing is going someplace and having people excited to see me, excited for the campaign, investing uh, their hopes for the future in me and yep. uh, my run. And that's something that you can't anticipate really. And you certainly can't anticipate what it's like in real life when you show up and there is like the mom or the uh, nurse or the school teacher or the union worker. It's gotta be very rewarding personally. Yeah, so so that that was the best part. Are your and, parents still alive, Andrew? Yeah, yeah, they are happily. Thank, thank, thank goodness for that. Though I haven't seen them in a while because they're kind of older. I can't imagine how rewarding it must be. And I imagine they got to events to see your parents seeing you ignite a conversation nationally, have people show up who buy into their son. That just must have been so remarkably rewarding for you and for them. Yeah, it brought my family closer together, uh, particularly when my uh, wife and kids joined me on the trail in the later stages. And so the worst part was I didn't see my kids a whole lot for two years, really, because I was on the trail so much and like I would just parachute back in. 
Um, and that was hard because my boys now are seven and four. So, you know, you remember those ages. Yeah. Um, yeah. In terms of what, what drove me to run, Scott, uh, you're an entrepreneur. And so it's like you see that there's like a need in the market. Like yep. the, they're the things that you and I care about and care about deeply, care about the future. Uh, and you know no one's going to do shit about it, really. Yeah. Like you, you look up and say like, especially if you've had the fortune or misfortune of meeting those people, which I had done. Like I, I'd been around senators and governors and presidents. And I was like, no one's going to do fuck all about like yeah. some of the biggest things coming down the road. Uh, and so you knew this. Uh, you fancy yourself a problem solver and entrepreneur and also a patriot and a parent. And you look up and say there is no plausible way that this is going to get addressed unless someone runs for president, advances these ideas, mainstreams them, gets them to a point where they have a uh, an accelerated timeline and possibility of getting passed. Um, and then you have the belief that you might be able to actually advance that, those ideas. Yep. Then to me, it actually would have been a very, very petty decision not to run uh, because if you think you might be able to do that and you're like, yeah, like uh, I'll go, you know, like run some startup somewhere and like pad my bank account, then you're kind of an asshole. Yep. And so, so, so to me, really, like the question I had to face is like, am I going to just like live with myself being a total asshole or am I going to do something about it? Um, and I looked at my downsides and I said, like, what are my downsides? Time away from my family, money, uh, total humiliation. Um, you know, like, and I looked at it and it's like, I can live with these things, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. you know, and, and part of it too, is like growing up the, the first generation, uh, you know, son of immigrants in, uh, in the seventies, like I got humiliated a lot <laughs> like as a kid. So I'm, so I'm not someone who is like scared of looking ridiculous, uh, because, you know, like you build up some, um, yeah, some thick skin around that if you'd experience that somewhat regularly as a kid. Yeah, nothing really wonderful happens to you without taking an uncomfortable risk. And it's when you were describing that asshole that's been focused on money and not public service, you know, that's me. And I, I admire people like you that are sort of hitting, you're kind of hitting your prime income earning years. And I have, unfortunately, and I'm, I'm, smart enough to recognize it. I don't know if I have the integrity or the courage to do anything about it, but I grew up with no money and I decided very early on that I was gonna develop economic security. And then quite frankly, and I'm not proud of this, I've become a little bit drunk with status and power, the status and power that money affords you and the lifestyle. And I've been very focused on money and I've always had a great deal of admiration for people who decide that, okay, I've gotten to a certain level of comfort. I'm going to stop howling in the money storm and I'm going to start trying to give back and, and add value. And it's something I don't like about myself. Um, what advice would you have for people who are caught in this hamster wheel of I want the bigger house, I want the second house, I don't want to fly business class, I want to fly, I want my own plane someday, I want, you know, I want that. I think a capitalist society is just so much about economic security and all my friends who are entrepreneurs and all the wealthy people I know who claim they don't care about money are obsessed with money. Anyone who says they don't care about money is obsessed with it or that's what I found. How do you, how do you get to a point where you say, all right, I'm going to focus on the country. I'm going to focus on service. What, you know, was there a moment when you said this is, 
this is this is what I'm about, and I'm going to kind of step off the the hamster wheel. I had a couple of advantages. Uh, one is growing up the children of immigrants. Like you're kind of used to things not being great. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I guess like we had like you know like the. And it was fine. I mean, I had like a, a like a you know quality uh, middle class uh, upbringing and environment, but uh, there's like a scrappiness where like you're not at least my my folks were not really driven by like nice stuff. Um, and the other advantage was that as an entrepreneur, my income level was so volatile that like I'd make a lot yeah, in one year agreed. and then like nothing the next year. And so as a result, you just became like okay, uh, like even if their times are good, let me not spend every dollar and like have my lifestyle get better. Let yeah. me just like find like a, a, a level that I'm comfortable with. Um, so, so those were a couple of the big advantages I had. And I don't begrudge folks who, you know, are, are like pursuing market based success. Um, in, in my case, and my joke with my wife that it was sort of a bait and switch, Scott, because like I was like a fairly normal uh, CEO operator guy um, when she and I met and started dating. And then after my company was bought, um, I turned around and was like, hey, I'm sick of seeing all of the nations, not all, but like a lot of the nations, like uh, ambitious energetic types do stuff that I know is not going to actually do anyone any good. And it's probably going to turn them into miserable human beings and assholes over time. Um, so so one, one advantage was that like I spent five uh, unhappy months as a corporate attorney in my 20s. Um, yeah. and, and I thought it was like the worst thing in the world. I, I joked that my... Uh, firm was like a temple to the squandering of human potential. Uh, and so like I, I took like a massive pay cut uh, to start a dot com that flopped out of that time. Yeah. Um, and my parents, everyone was like, what are you doing? You know, it was a six figure job. And I was like, no, I'm going to do this thing. And then my startup died. And like I still owed 100K in, in law school loans, which is one reason why I'm passionate about the fact that we're loading these kids up with debt because um, I carried my debt around for um, like a decade or more. I used to call it my mistress because it was like I was writing a check to like a family in another right. town. I was like, right. uh, like I hope Sally Mae's having a good life and like, yeah, yeah. you know, wh wherever it is. So so all those things together uh, just made me, you know, it's like I was just trying to pursue opportunities um, that I thought, and, and, you know, I'm not like, I'm not a saint in the sense that it's like, oh, like, let me do this. I find the work interesting. I'll meet some great people. I have a chance to work with smart people I admire and respect. Uh, you know, like, I just wanted to do work I was pumped about. Um, and the work I was pumped about was work that uh, was a bit more service oriented, uh, like when I started the nonprofit. And that was... Like I joke with Evelyn, my wife, it's like, what, what do you think was harder? Starting that nonprofit or running for president? She was like, oh, starting Venture for America, for sure. <laughs> like, like when you turn around and say, I'm going to start a nonprofit and not like the, the like, I'm going to write a check and then become the chairman and then float away. Like I was like, I'm going to be the founder, CEO, no salary, just gut it out, like make this thing happen. Um, and Venture for America, Scott, did something I think you'd really love. Like we recruited and enlist and we do do it to this day very successfully i'm um, recruiting and enlist enterprising and ambitious college grads who want to learn how to become entrepreneurs and then we send them to work at early stage companies in new orleans detroit baltimore cleveland other cities around the country and then we have a seed fund to invest in them after a two-year fellowship like i know you're very interested in this idea of national service like you proposed a corona core for uh 18 to 22 year olds to go out and contact trace uh, i had the same i uh the same 
general idea in 2011. Um, and then I quit my job and started a nonprofit service corps uh, for entrepreneurship because of what mm. you said earlier, which is that entrepreneurship's dying in the United States. And I thought it was dying even more dramatically in Rust Belt cities and the Southeast. And so I spent six and a half years trying to solve for that. Um, and, and I thought that our meritocracy was dementing our people. So I was going to Duke and uh, uh, you know, other campuses being like, hey, instead of becoming a toolbox banker or consultant, why don't you learn to become an entrepreneur and move to Detroit for two years? And then these these kids took me up on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and it, it, so that was the work I did for, for six and a half years. Um, and then I realized that shit was broken at a much higher level and there was no way to fix it except to have the government... Uh, rewrite our economy in different ways. And then that led me to run for president. Um, so that was a long winded answer as to to how I wound up doing what I'm doing. Like I, I see myself um, as just someone who wants to do work I'm passionate about. But what, okay, so let me lead you into another question. And that is what, you have ideas, you clearly have, you're a unique thinker. I think coming out of the presidential election, if they said who has the most unique most creative ideas, you would win, you would, you would be at the top of that poll. What is the most effective platform for you over the next couple of years? Is it to be in the cabinet position? Is it to run for governor or Senate? Or is it to position yourself for another run uh, in four years? Like what is, or as a media personality, what is the platform that helps you get the most traction around these ideas? I'm just trying to solve the problems in real time. And this is a catastrophic time in the country. So I'm going to be attracted to whatever position helps me make the most impact. Um, Right now, I want Joe to win. um, And we've been having conversations about joining the cabinet in a technology facing role, uh, something to try and address some of the issues that we you and I talked about earlier on. Uh, Yeah, I just want to do good work, man. It's like, it's what you know, what, what drives me. Um, certainly I'm very open to running for office again because I've learned now more than ever that we need to speed up, that our government is not designed to solve these problems in a meaningful way. And you talked about the incentives of university administrators. The incentives of politicians are not actually to like make big changes or solve problems either. It's yeah. to accrue resources and political capital, um, avoid uh, scandalous press coverage because you did something, you know, like reprehensible or like you harassed someone or, or like, you know, yep. like, like something awful. Like, and, and that, that I pretty much listed all of your incentives. Like, yeah. like it, it's not like, hey, did you actually address the imbalances in our education system that have been building up for generations? No, it's like, uh, are, are you actually going to address the tech platforms that are now um, more powerful than our government in many respects are having a bigger impact on our life. It's like, no, it's like, like they, they, they're not actually being judged on the merits of uh, the government's performance, which is one reason why everyone's, and look at what this pandemic, I mean, like we, we are the biggest uh, fiasco globally in terms oh. of uh, our ability to, to handle this because uh, of like uh, our failed government. And a lot of people will put that at the feet of Donald Trump, which he deserves certainly like a whole lot of credit. But there were failures at every level of government. You look at the CDC's decisions like that. There were a lot of embarrassing uh, bureaucratic missteps there. FDA, same thing. Like, you know, we, we had the, like months to try and build up testing and contact tracing and uh, it hasn't worked. So, yeah, so th- this is... Uh, 
this is the challenge, man. It's like it's like a turnaround where if you came upon like a really big organization like the UCs and you looked up and you said, hey, these people are constitutionally unable to cut costs. Like, what the hell do we do here? It's a little bit like that where you get to the government and you're like, OK, like these people are constitutionally unable to do anything that's against their political interest. Right. Like, <laughs> like, yeah. like what, what, what do we do with this? Um, and so, so like one of the things I have to do is I have to make it so that it's in people's political interest to solve problems. Um, and the, the most obvious problem right now is that there are tens of millions of Americans who do not have uh, enough money to like get through the next number of weeks and months. 74% of Americans think emergency cash relief is a good idea. Like tens of millions of Americans got $1,200 in cash Yep. Um, in April and they loved it. So so this is like my lever right now is like, okay, what's the big problem I can solve that will try and align the interest of politicians with the people? Cash relief, universal basic income. Um, education, I think, will be very effective because middle class Americans and aspiring Americans are fed up with the fact that, like you said, they look up and say, how the hell is college $60,000? Like yep. that makes no sense. Uh, so so we, we have to just keep on trying to find these like leverage points um, but I hope to be in position where I can actually start pulling policy levers sometime in the next number of uh, months because like the problems are getting worse, unfortunately. And you to me are one of the key uh, thinkers on actually speaking honestly and uh, bluntly about just how severe a lot of these problems are. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN dot com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. So if there's a chief innovation officer position in the cabinet and you get that, obviously that would be a, a great platform. What if what if that doesn't happen? What if Trump's reelected or Biden chooses someone else for that role? What what is that platform, though? I, I don't even know where you live. Would you ever consider running for governor or Senate? And if so, where would that be and what would the role be? 
You and I are neighbors, Scott. I actually like my my. I have a place on the west side of Manhattan. Um, oh yeah. So like, that's where my my kids are signed up to go to school in New York City. Um, you know, in in the fall. Would you ever consider a run against Schumer or Cuomo? I mean, people are asking me to consider various uh, New York-based runs. Um, like that, there was like a campaign to draft me to run for mayor. There's uh, you know, there are people who are looking to have me um, run for other offices in in New York. That just feels kind of right as rain. Yang for mayor. What's wrong with that? Why wouldn't you do that? We're going to look at it for sure. I mean, right now, my focus is on helping Joe win and try and address some of the nation scale problems. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like we're, we're looking at different things. Uh, the, the key thing is like, I'm driven by the same things I was driven by when I decided to run for president, which is we have these massive problems. Our political class is generally not up for it. Uh, and so we have to change it as quickly as we can. I'm in. <laughs> I've never been to Gracie Mansion or whatever it's called. Yeah, you know, I think it, that just all, you know, you hear something and you, you try it on and it just it just feels right. So I'm curious. I just have a couple. I, I apologize. I'm asking all the questions here, but um, no, fine. What um, you were on the trail with all the candidates. So just give me a sense for who is. Uh, obviously excluding yourself, of all the candidates you were exposed to, who scores the highest on an IQ test? Who is just by traditional smarts the smartest person who ran for president on the Democratic side? It's exactly who you think. Like the, the folks who come across as really, really uh, cognitively loaded when you have conversations with them uh, are Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, uh, Bernie. Like uh, yeah. Bernie's very strong. Um, so those are the folks that I think most people would expect, you know, if you just were to throw it who's out Who's the there. most likable? When the cameras are off, who's the most likable? Who would you, who do you see and you kind of can't help but smile or think I'd like to hang out with that person? You know who, who's genuinely a very warm, likable guy is uh, Joe Biden, honestly. Yeah. And, and that was before I, um, I had any kind of national reputation. Like Joe was always warm to me. Um, you know, great to my wife. Like he's, he he's Joe. Like he actually comes across like that in real life too. Backstage, who would you, who do you think Joe should pick as his veep? I don't know some of the people that he's considering, uh, but the folks that we know he's considering that I've spent time with, like uh, Kamala, um, would be very strong. Uh, I I was at an event with Tammy Duckworth recently, and uh, she'd be excellent. Um, so I certainly don't have like they a, call you. They call you and they ask for one name. Who's your one name? Who do you think they should pick as Veep? So I genuinely think this has to be a Joe decision because uh, he has to work. Dude, with you sound like a politician. You sound not. You don't sound like the mayor of New York. Give me a name. It's genuine, man, because like, you know, if, if I were to say to you, like, hey, who, you know, who, who you're going to like saddle with, like next to you for X period of time it's be like, yo, it's going to be up to you. <laughs> I, mean, I know that sounds like a bullshit political answer, but but it's also genuine because, you know, you got like Joe has to live with a person. Yeah, I don't know, though. It seems like a lot of presidents and vice presidents haven't liked each other, that it's more of a calculated political decision around who, who's going to help them, um, who's going to help them win. I, I think Joe's going to win, like, uh, by the numbers. Um, and I, I think he could choose, frankly, just about anyone acceptable, and he'd still be the prohibitive favorite. So so expanding education, for sure. If I were to put you in charge just to, like, uh, have this turned around, given the excesses we both see, if there were a couple of big policies that you'd love to see 
in place. Let's say I'm the secretary of innovation and then I call you up and say, all right, Scott, let's solve some problems. You'd be like, okay, here would be like my, you know, two or three top priorities. Uh, I think we need to start taxing endowments at universities that don't grow their freshman seats faster than population growth. That means they're no longer public servants or nonprofits. They're luxury brands. It's ridiculous that Harvard has the endowment of the GDP of Norway and has decided to constrict supply. That means they're no longer in the business of public service. They're in the business of being Hermes, and they should be, which is their, I believe, in private property. It's their decision. But they should be considered a private enterprise, and they should be taxed. Um, I hey, like Scott. This. You're not going to believe this. Yeah. One of the policies I ran on uh, was the Harvard tax, which, as I said, if you happen to have an endowment over 25 billion, which is only one school, <laughs> was Harvard, right. then you need to invest like uh, all of the gains from your endowment in a new campus in uh, one of these states, and it was like Ohio, Michigan, Florida. I because mean, uh, my my joke was that. It's like, how the hell are you opening a Shanghai campus and not like, uh, Agreed. you know, Saginaw campus or whatnot? Like, it, yeah. it, it, like it didn't make any sense because because we're subsidizing you to the tune of billions of dollars. So anyway, just want to let you know, it's like you wouldn't you wouldn't believe it. But like, you know, I, I actually had something called the Harvard tax on the books. But you're right. We should do it to every school. And I think Stanford's now above twenty five billion dollars. But I love that. Why isn't Stanford opening a satellite campus in Mississippi? Yeah, indeed. They can. They call me and say Stanford's applications have tripled in the last 30 years. They haven't increased their freshman class size one percent because again, we're all drunk on exclusivity and want to be the person with the degree that no one else can get. But I love the idea, and they they claim that they're space constrained, which they might be because the you know the the Palo Alto Community Board doesn't want them to build more buildings and increase traffic. But I, why wouldn't they need to? If if NYU can have something in Abu Dhabi and Wharton can have something in Singapore then why wouldn't Stanford or Harvard have uh, something in Detroit or you know, in, in some of the more lower income or harder hit communities? I think that's a fantastic idea. I think the second thing we need is class traders. And what do I mean by that? I think we need deans who are gonna um, stop awarding tenure. I think tenure, I think there are certain departments in universities that need uh, the protection from the current administration or you know, are saying provocative, even sometimes, un, you know, distasteful things. The basic notion of tenure is that, you know, if you say the world isn't flat, you don't get burned at the stake and you have intellectual freedom. But the reality is, Andrew, at a place like the business school where I work, we haven't said anything that interesting in 30 years. And it, it recommended changes to gap accounting are not that controversial. And tenure has gone from protecting a thought and provoking a conversation to basically the world's most expensive guild and union that creates a total lack of accountability and expense that directly translates to debt on young people. So I think we're going to need some class traders to say we have to hold ourselves accountable. We have to get more efficient. We have to lower our cost structure. Uh, I like the idea of uh, incorporating big and small tech to dramatically expand uh, enrollments. I like the idea of having uh, state systems have a hybrid model where you go to Cal State or a, a junior college for two years and then to a name brand school, thereby cutting costs by about 40%. Um, and I think we need, um, I think we need a dramatic, dramatic uh, cooperate, uh, grand bargain with state and local governments that says, look, we need you to, if you increase our budget by 20%, we'll increase our enrollments by 50% and take it back 
take, take the university system back to where it needs to be, and that is the greatest upward lubricant of the middle class as opposed to the vehicle for casting. So I think there's a, I think there's a ton of opportunity. Uh, I think it comes down to obviously will, resources, creativity, but it's, um, it's something I'm passionate about. I think it's, I think it, there's a, I think the crisis presents a tremendous opportunity. I mean, you realize, Andrew, in the next 12 months, these high tuition, high experience, kind of low brand or high acceptance rate universities, and there's hundreds if not thousands of them across the U.S., they could be to education where, where, what department stores are to retail. We could have a thousand universities begin a death march starting September 1, and that's upsetting. That's going to be chaos, but there's an opportunity to rethink certification, education. Um, you know, it's, it, it's going to take big thinking. It's going to take bold ideas. You know, unfortunately, we have so many dumpster fires that it doesn't feel like it's the kind of thing we can focus on. Uh, so hopefully, if, 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 you know, if, if, when Biden gets reelected or gets elected, it'll free us up to not focus on all the agita, all the hate, all the bullshit, and we can start focusing on some of these problems. Right now, it just feels like everyone's just way too distracted. Um, the comparison between these universities and department stores, I think, is really powerful and apt and compelling. And one of the things I said on the trails like look these malls don't just disappear they become these derelict ghost malls yeah. that that uh, are toxic to environments they depress property values they become havens for uh crime that they, they, they are what i call negative infrastructure where they go from having positive value to negative value really quickly if you have these campuses around the country that have the lights go out um it's the same thing where you'd have infrastructure go from being very valuable to being uh, very, very depressive uh, in days or weeks. So it, it makes sense to me that we need to do something to try and repurpose some of these physical plants and institutions to do something um, that we need. Because you look up and say, of course, we're going to need more education for more people. Um, what what you said it is correct that you're going to have the winner-take-all economy play out in education as well. Where it's like, why am I going to pay top dollar for this uh, lesser institution, lesser credential, when UCLA is going to come up with this hybrid offering that uh, I can then take advantage of, and it's going to be more efficient and like uh, a better credential. Um, and so, to me, we have to do something with like the hundreds of schools that are going to shut their doors. Uh, you know, it's like there is an opportunity, but it is going to be a situation where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And and in some cases, the poor getting poorer are going to be institutions like historically black uh, colleges and universities. You know, they have like skeletal endowments. And like it, like if anyone's going to take a hit and not be able to survive, unfortunately, it's, it's uh, some of those institutions. Um, so it's another area where, like you said, you like you need massive rethinking and investment. And there's the, there are only two plausible sources. Number one, philanthropy, which in my case, in my opinion, is a bust. Like it's not going to be at that scale. Like maybe, like you said, um, some of these schools will be able to turn to their alumni and say, "Hey, bail us out, bail us out." Yeah. Like you know, you'll have a couple survive on that basis. Uh, but it really has to be the public sector again, and there does need to be a grand bargain. The problem is that these schools. Uh, have haven't had to pay a price, and if you're um, an institution where like you've only known one direction and you've been able to like you know ratchet up prices, you are as you said constitutionally unable to turn around and say okay it's time to get ruthless like you know these ten amazing vice deans or whatever like 
four of you have to go, you know, <laughs> and yeah. you turn to the professor and say like, hey, um, your, your teaching load's about to go up. And then you turn 100%. to the other person, like they're, they're, they're just not, like a lot of these institutions would shut down before they would make those kinds of decisions. What a, I, I'm curious, so going back, and I have a lot of listeners who are, my listenership skews young and it skews male, um, and relative, I would argue, kind of relative to every other cohort, and some of it is a good thing and overdue, but relative to other cohorts, young men are failing. And that is, they're not making, they're not making as much progress as some other cohorts. And I'm wondering what advice you have or what advice you would give to your younger self or what advice you would give to, to young men kind of, you know, just starting out in their career in terms of their professional approach. And I'd love to hear your thoughts or your learnings about trying to be, you know, a good dad and a good husband. I think it's a massive un- under uh, discussed topic that young men are failing in the United States of America, but it's true. Uh, and it's in the numbers. I mean, you can see it uh, at every level. One of the things I say in my book, Scott, um, is that, and I think you were raised by a single mom. That's right, right? Yeah, I'm a child of a single immigrant mother who lived and died a secretary. Our household income was never more than uh, $40,000. Uh, and the warm hand of government literally grabbed me by the scruff of my neck and threw me forward. Uh, and I worry that that warm hand is no longer as big and as caring as it used to be. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm the son of a single immigrant mother. Yeah. So, uh, today 40% of kids are, um, born into single parent households, uh, and 90% of the time single parent household is single mother. Yep. And if you look at the, the data, uh, little girls who grow up with single moms actually have okay outcomes, um, in part because, uh, girls are more adaptable. They're better at school earlier. Uh, they've got a strong female role model. Yep. They they see super mom. Um, it, but if you have a little boy in that setting, um, it turns out that little boys, and I, I'm the father to two young boys myself, yep. so I can see why this is the case. But apparently little boys are more sensitive to parental time and input and the lack thereof than little girls. Yep. Like they, they, they're, they're more subject to uh, variability that way. Um, and so the outcomes around boys brought up by single moms, there are more adverse uh, academic um, progressions, uh, more behavioral issues, um, and the, the data is not great. Um, and and to me, a lot of the problems that, that we see um, like cascade from, from there where you send them to these schools that aren't really equipped um, for people at different maturation levels. And it turns out that boys often mature at different rates than whatever the grade level is supposed to be. Yep. Um, uh, and then uh, at, at the college level, uh, in the last I checked, I think it's something like um, 43% of undergrads are men, like 57% 70% of high school valedictorians are young women now. Think about that. Yeah, so so, so you, have, uh, you have boys and men coming of age, and then you have an economy that has become increasingly punishing and uninviting. Like it used to be if you were a guy with a high school 
um, education, you could get like a factory job and like, you know, yeah. union household, middle class life, like da da da, and like all that stuff's gotten decimated. Yep. You know, we've gotten rid of 4 million manufacturing jobs and the rest of it. Um, and then you have a culture that uh, like, uh, that looks at men and being like, hey, whatever happened, it's your fault. <laughs> you know, it's like that. Yep. It's like every room we walked into for the last 400 years, we've been right. And all of a sudden, every room we walk into right now, we're wrong. So it's like Crimea River. But I do see young men feeling like, kind of they feel like they're you know they're they're in this nether netherland right now and as a young guy myself i mean i remember vividly when my company failed in my 20s and like you know you're like like down on your luck and your confidence is shot um it's hard because i at least speaking for myself like you had this real thirst to try and make something of yourself and when it feels like you can't make something of yourself you can like eat yourself alive it's humiliating it's like the, the yeah. And, and in my case, my failure was very public. Everyone knew that I tried to start this company and that it was a flop and that like the, the rest of it. So uh, because, you know, if you start something, you kind of have to tell everyone you're doing it. And then when it dies, then like everyone sees it. So it felt like for a while, like no one was calling me and the, the, the rest of it. And I remember lying on my floor being like, what did I do? And like, I owed this hundred thousand in, in debt. Um, and and I, I think it is something where, uh, you know, many, many men are not being you know, Americans generally, but men, I think uh, to a higher degree, like there, there isn't like a clear path forward. Yep. Um, and, and so, you know, like my guidance, um, would be to focus on the things that, you know, you can control that will give you like a, at least some form of self-development, uh, or in the worst case scenario, at least like comfort where it's like, in my case, when things went South in my twenties, like I established some fitness goals for myself. I was like, well, like, sure, I'm a failure, but at least I'll be a fit failure. I'll have a six pack. Or it could be like something around a relationship where, you know, it's like you turn around and say, look, most of my friends like, you know, aren't calling me now, but you know, this one friend is calling me. And so like, I'm going to try and like um, uh, pay attention to the positives in my life. Um try and learn. I mean, a lot of people who listen to your podcast are trying to develop their business savvy. Um, and so that's something that I did. Like I tried to find people who knew more than I did, which was everyone, and then learn from them. One thing that helped me a lot in that direction is reading books. Um, I think podcasts are great, but I think reading books um, to me was like the best way to feel like I got inside someone's head um, and was, was getting a, a bit of like uh, wisdom. Um, the single most concrete thing that happened for me positively and professionally um, and this is advice I'd, I'd give to anyone is like, just try and find someone who uh, is ahead of you on a path that you want. And then just say like, look, I will do anything under the sun for you. I don't care what it pays or doesn't pay. I don't care what you assign me. Like I'll take out the garbage. I don't care. But just like my being uh, able to like demonstrate my value to that person in that setting um, would be setting me up for at least some degree of development on the path that I wanted um, and so in my case, after my company died, there was like a more established entrepreneur who's like, hey, join my my little company. Um, and I just saw this guy and was like, this guy is someone that I'd want to be when I grow up. And so like whatever this guy wants me to do, I'll do. Um, and so if you can find someone who you look up to in that respect, um, just try and add value for them in any form. Um, and then you'll find yourself becoming a little bit more like them over time. What about any thoughts on being a, a good husband and a good father? I mean, like, you know, I mean, it's a constant struggle. You know, it's like you can be a good dad one day and then the next dad, yeah. uh, next day, like, 
you know, like uh, be be a, a less exemplary parent. Um, and it's the same being a partner. It's like you're married. And I mean, I, I'm just like the luckiest guy to be married to Evelyn. Like she put up with so much stuff um, and appreciates me for the things that I do bring to the table. Um, and, you know, I just have to, I tell her, I appreciate her as often as I tell her I love mm-hmm. her. Um, and so a lot of, a lot of the struggle I've had to deal with, I think that many people can relate to is just trying to be grateful. Like, cause it's so easy to start getting down on yourself or your relationships and be like, Oh, like I have a document on my phone. That's literally, it's like, okay, here are the things I'm grateful for. Mm-hmm. And then anytime I see myself spiraling in a negative way or like snapping at my kid or like snapping at, um, you know, like someone who doesn't deserve it, I'll be like, wait a minute. Like, I hadn't seen my kids in like months and I missed them terribly. And like now I'm around them and I'm like not appreciating it. Like, you know, like you, you try and like get, get some perspective. Um, and in my case, it's helpful to have a document I actually refer to where it's like, here are the things I'm grateful for. And some of the things are stupid. You know, some of the things are like, Oh, I'm really grateful for my, like, uh, for that pizza place. I really like Chipotle. I'm grateful for Chipotle every day. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You have Chipotle on your list. You'd be like, Oh, I love that place. Like good for that. Um, so it, it's like appreciate the little things and the big things. And in terms of your accomplishments, have some really easy wins for yourself too. It's like, look, I can't control my professional path today, but I can make sure I get like, uh, you know, uh, a little bit of nature in or some pushups in or whatever the hell it is. Like give yourself some things that are actually very, very achievable and basic. Uh, and that could be like appreciating Chipotle. And what it, I'm curious what you're talking about, I think fitness is, I mean, fitness is my antidepressant. I think it's something that young people need to embrace at an early age for a lot of reasons. What's your fitness routine? Uh, well, in quarantine, it's been a little different. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, like I, I had a weekly basketball game um, that was like the centerpiece of my mental health. Um, but now it's uh, calisthenics, riding a bike, um, playing with the kids. Good for you. All right, Yang for mayor. Mayor Yang, that's got a ring to it. I don't know, Scott. I, I'm I'm coming off so quickly of having like Yang for president. It's like Yang for president. Like that sounded better. <laughs> that sounded better. I need I need to try on a different Yang for X label uh, for a, a little while to get a mental fit. It took me a little while to have Yang for president come off the tip of my tongue, but then eventually. Uh, you know, it was chanted by thousands and then I, I really got into it. <laughs> well, it sounds like if I do do it, I'm going to have a world, world-class uh, um, a business mind, uh, like somewhere on the advisory. <laughs> I'm, I'm running I'm running your finance committee and I'm in for the first 50 bucks. I'm in. I'm in. Well, Scott, whatever I do, uh, we'll certainly lean on you for... Uh, guidance and insight because you are one of the most incisive and perceptive thinkers on this and you're like a voice of real humanity it's like uh, i think that's what sets you apart is there are all these folks who are embedded in these in these institutions that aren't willing to speak plainly about what's going on within those institutions um but yeah we need to return to basics in many ways and a lot of our organizations have lost the thread like these schools um, our government leaders, for sure. Uh, we're going to fix it. Um, we don't have a choice, you and I, because we had kids and we have to cl- try and clean up this mess as much as we can.
Do you have it? What, what is the action item? What's the call to arms? We have the election in, I don't know, how many days away is it? 100 days or something? Um, what, what's the call to arms? What, what can young people or anyone listening thinks, you know, I, I want to help. What do you think is the most effective way to help right now? Number one, help yourself. I mean, this is a terrible time. You know, like we, we mm -hmm. have to look out for ourselves and like and say like it's okay to be depressed or stressed out and take a break. Number two is help the people around you in your own life because right. uh, you know people are struggling. And if you have the wherewithal, if you can like contribute to, you know, like for example, if there's like someone you know who's like out of work to be like, look, like I, I just Venmo people randomly. Um, you know, it's like. Yep. <laughs> no, I, I have this, I have this. I have this rule called, or this, be a baller. And that is when I was growing up, I had a bunch of crazy jobs. I was a box boy. I was a bar back. I parked cars at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. I was a pool boy at the Mondrian Hotel. And on a regular basis, Andrew, some total stranger would give me 10, 20, 50 bucks. And for if you're at UCLA and you're living on top ramen and bananas, which I was during the summers, you know, it was kind of life-changing. It meant you could go on a date. It meant you could have a full tank of gas, which was a luxury. Uh, and it just changed my, it would change, it wouldn't change my life, but it would change my week. And then I think being, I call it being a baller, and that is over tip. If you're in a position where you have some economic security, you don't need a lot, giving the delivery guy, the woman putting your food in the backseat of your car, whatever it is, giving him 10, 20, 50 bucks, it can, it, it can literally be, uh, life-changing for that moment and it's uh, so many people yes. did it to me you're in yeah so be a be a baller and then if you want to try and make uh, changes at like a, a large scale level my organization movehumanityforward.com um, we've given out seven million dollars in direct economic relief uh, so so that's been great we're trying to help candidates around the country who want to try and solve problems uh, and then a bigger picture, you know, and in, in, in my view, we got to get Joe into the White House. And then if then there'll be Secretary Yang of something or other, and then hopefully and then Scott on some advisory uh, board and then we'll we'll get to work. Um, but it's not going to happen by accident. So we just got to go do it. I wonder. And I, this is my advice to you. I think Mayor Yang is a more influential role. If you're in the cabinet, you're going to have less impact across a broader a broader population, but you could experiment with UBI in certain boroughs. You could, I mean, you're basically president of, you know, the 19th largest country in the world versus being, being in the cabinet. Now I've decided we're running, we're running for mayor, Andrew. We're running for mayor. <laughs> we will have further conversations about this, Scott. Uh, but thank you, man. This is a first of many. I, I had a blast. And uh, yeah, we should make this semi-regular because I learn uh, a lot from you every time. Yeah, I appreciate that, Andrew. And like I said, I, I think the most, you know, in the world of academia, what we're supposedly charged with is not being right or wrong, but catalyzing a conversation. And you catalyzed a conversation. You know, UBI, when I first heard it, I thought that makes no sense and I didn't like it. And I'm like immediately kind of checked back to this notion of socialism. And then the more I heard you speak, the more it really evolved my thinking around what are creative solutions for moving us forward and leveling up some of our disenfranchised um, cohorts and kind of the economic apartheid that I'd like to think unwittingly we've ended up with in the U.S. So anyways, I'm in. I'm planning our first event. I don't know what it's going to be. It's going to be a coffee clatch or a virtual fundraiser. Just let me know when you're announcing. 
Thank you, Scott. You'll be among the first to hear. And uh, I, uh, I appreciate the sentiment. You know, it's like for me, there's a balance like with everything. It's like I appreciate everything I've done, but you know, like I, I got to solve the problem. Like, you know, we got to actually get this thing across the finish line because this country is falling apart. Um, and, you know, it's going to be people like you and I that hopefully can help pull it together. Yeah, more more you than me, but I appreciate it. All right, brother. Thanks for the time. Uh, and uh, we'll do this again. And uh, like I said, Yang, go Yang. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate the heck out of you. All the best to the family. Thanks, brother. Likewise. Bye.